Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of appetizing articles from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. Natural disasters was our cover line as we looked into the impact of storms and floods around the world. The extent of the devastation will become clear only when the flood water recedes, leaving ruined cars, filthy mud-choked houses and the bloated corpses of the drowned. But as we went to press, with the rain pounding South Texas for the sixth day, Hurricane Harvey had already set records as America's most severe deluge. The devastation in Texas has commanded the most headlines, but it's not alone. In India, Bangladesh and Nepal, at least 1,200 people have died and millions have been left homeless by this year's monsoon floods. Last month, torrential rains caused a mudslide in Sierra Leone that killed over 1,000, though the exact toll will never be known. Around the world, governments are grappling with the threat from floods. Global warming is partly responsible, but there's a less obvious culprit too. Poor planning bears even more blame. Houston, which has almost no restrictions on land use, is an extreme example of what can go wrong. Although a light touch has enabled developers to cater to the city's rapid growth, 1.8 million extra inhabitants since 2000, it has also led to concrete being laid over vast areas of coastal prairie that used to absorb the rain. Governments need to band together to deal with climate change, but there are more local solutions to the immediate problems of natural disasters as well. Cities need to protect flood defences and catchment areas, such as the wetlands around Kolkata and the lakes in and around Pokhara in Nepal, whose value is becoming clear. Flood maps need to be up to date. Civil engineers, often starved of funds and strangled by bureaucracy, should be building and reinforcing levees and reservoirs now, before it is too late. All this is a test of government, of foresight and the ability to withstand the lobbying of homeowners and developers. But politicians and officials who fail the test need to realise that, sooner or later, they will wake up to a Hurricane Harvey of their own. We head over to a piece on Guatemala now, in our Americas section. It's a country undergoing its own crisis of leadership. Before he ran to be president of Guatemala two years ago, Jimmy Morales pretended to be a presidential candidate in a television sitcom called Morelejas, or Cautionary Tales. Neto, the bumbling office seeker clad in a white suit, red bandana and cowboy hat, decides that after telling a boatload of lies, he will withdraw from the race. He offers the remaining fictional candidates some parting wisdom. Haven't you realised that people aren't dumb, that people see how you go to sleep poor and wake up rich? In 2015, this message galvanised Guatemalan voters. Running as an outsider with no connection to the discredited political class, Mr Morales won 67% of the vote in a runoff that October. Unfortunately, 
Now Guatemalans are feeling duped. Mr Morales soon showed Neto-like ineptitude in exercising the powers of his office. Worse, many voters now see him as beholden to the system he ran against. On August 27th, he ordered the expulsion from the country of Ivan Velázquez, the Colombian head of the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, or CSIG, a UN-backed body that has been investigating corruption for more than a decade. The CSIG had helped bring down Mr Morales' opponents, but now it had turned its gaze on him. Now it is going after Mr Morales' National Convergence Front, or FCN, which was founded in 2008 by former army officers. Keeping such company has damaged Mr Morales' reputation. Some of his advisers have been accused of committing atrocities during the war. A recent cartoon in a local newspaper portrayed Mr Morales as a puppet whose strings are pulled by generals. An election looms, but it may not bring much change. All the three main political blocs have been implicated in one scandal or another. A group of young activists called Movimiento Semilla, or Seed Movement, hopes to put forward a presidential candidate in 2019, but has yet to choose one. The seed of renewal in Guatemala may take years to flower. Now we segue from one set of suspicious promises to another as we head to an article in our China section looking at the resurgence of traditional medicine. Feng Yuan gazes around his crowded shop and says happily that business is booming. He has a reliable supplier in Russia and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies are queuing up to buy what he sells, antlers. Tangles of them lie in huge meshes on the floor. Thousands more, sliced into discs, fill glass boxes. They are used to treat breast disease in traditional Chinese medicine, or TCM. The shop looks a bit like a Scottish baronial hall. Deerhead trophies gaze down from the walls, as does a red-fronted gazelle with black horns like scimitars. I don't sell those, he says hastily, endangered list. Mr Fang is just one trader in an enormous TCM market. They sell every medicinal ingredient imaginable. There are chips of agar wood, smoke from which is said to clean the lungs. There are dried frogs, geckos and deer penis, which dissolved in alcohol supposedly aids recovery from athletic injuries. And there are boxes of Tibetan caterpillar fungus, or the Viagra of the Himalayas, a gram of which can sell for more than the same weight of gold. And sales of these remedies are booming. Some seek it out as a cheap alternative, while for others, costlier TCM treatments can be a sort of status symbol. TCM has also benefited from the attention paid to it by Xi Jinping, China's president. Mr Xi calls it the gem of Chinese traditional science and says he uses it. TCM is in its golden age, he claims. He urges practitioners to push for TCM to step onto the world stage. However, evidence that TCM works is scanty. Clinical trials in scientific journals have reported some examples of effective TCM treatments, for example against migraines and obesity. They have found some cases where TCM works well in combination with Western medicine, for example, in treating schizophrenia. However, the overall record is poor. Traditional Chinese medicine's focus on preventative treatment is a step in the right direction, but it's undermined if the medicine simply doesn't work. The long-term goal should be to establish a healthcare system that relies on modern medicine and that provides the kind of preventive treatment that TCM claims to offer. The government is exaggerating TCM's effectiveness. 
Use of it is so widespread in China, partly because few are willing to challenge the science behind it. TCM is distinctly Chinese. To question it is often construed as unpatriotic. Striving for modernity while clinging to tradition is a familiar struggle in China. As the problems of TCM show, achieving the right balance is harder than it looks. One thing that never lacks the right balance, of course, is Economist Radio, as so many of you point out. And we take a look at some highlights of the past week's Economist Radio coverage now. On Money Talks, finance editor Simon Long and US technology editor Alexandra Suich dug into Uber's decision on a new CEO. The search for a new CEO has been going on since June when Travis Kalanick, Uber's founder, resigned after a huge number of setbacks and scandals at Uber. Uh, Khosra Shahi's name had not been mentioned. Better known tech uh, CEOs and um, the former CEO of GE, Jeff Immeld, an industrial conglomerate, um, and Meg Whitman, who's the CEO of HP Enterprise, they were thought to be the two leading contenders. So it was a surprise. Generally, people are really happy about the news. So Khosra Shahi has been running Expedia for over a decade. Uh, Expedia is an online travel site, which might at first not seem like it shares very much in common with ride hailing, um, but in fact does. Both are marketplaces where people go to transact. The business model is to take a cut um, of the price of whatever they're selling. Um, And they rely on really large scale and technical infrastructure. So slightly different sectors, um, both in the travel business um, and both marketplaces. And I think that people uh, think that Khosra Shahi, although he has a low profile, is a very able candidate and is hopefully going to restore some order to Silicon Valley's most chaotic tech company. And on the week ahead, our Berlin bureau chief looked at a party that didn't do too well in the last German elections, but is in with a chance of helping shape the next German government. The Free Democrats are traditionally Germany's third party after the uh, Christian Democrats of Angela Merkel and the centre-left Social Democrats. They've governed with both parties in coalition over the years. Uh, They were partners to... um, Helmut Kohl, for example, in his SPD, in his CDU government, and they were partners to Willy Brandt in his SPD government. So they're between the two. It was their latest coalition with Angela Merkel between 2009 and 2013 that made them need the renewal they've been going through. Uh, Having achieved a historic a record high vote in 2009. The experience of government didn't do them any good. They were seen to be quite indistinct and and not to get much done separately from Mrs Merkel's agenda. And so how have they reinvented themselves more recently? After the party's uh, terrible defeat in 2013, it was taken over by uh, Christian Lindner, who was then just 34 years old, uh, a rising star within the party. And he essentially inherited the rubble of that election defeat uh, at a time when many people were asking if the party would even survive. And the the consensus was that if it didn't get back into parliament after at least one, uh, one more parliamentary term, that is to say at this upcoming election, then the future of the party's very existence might be in question. And he's turned the party around by giving it a more distinctive image, by making it, some people would say, quite a one-man show. He's a very charismatic, energetic guy, and he's really made himself the face of the party. He's good on television, and he's turned it into this quite sort of 
big personality, bold ideas, polarising positions um, outfit that has been able to claw back some support among the German electorate. From the public airwaves to the most private communications imaginable, we head over to our science section. And an article there explored the latest developments in the search for secrecy. In the never-ending arms race between encryptors and eavesdroppers, many of those on the side that is trying to keep messages secret are betting on quantum mechanics, a description of how subatomic particles behave, to come to their aid. In particular, they think a phenomenon called quantum entanglement may provide an unsubvertible way of determining whether or not a message has been intercepted by a third party. Such interception, quantum theory suggests, will necessarily alter the intercepted message in a recognisable way, meaning that the receiver will know it is insecure. This phenomenon depends on the fact, surprising but true, that particles with identical properties which are created simultaneously are entangled in a way that means one cannot have its properties altered without also altering the other, no matter how far apart they are. Early experiments sending such quantum-encrypted messages have been encouraging, but doing so through air has proved extremely difficult. An alternative is to beam entangled photons through the vacuum of space, where there is nothing to absorb them. This would mean transmitting them via satellite. Whether that can be done while preserving entanglement was, for a long time, unclear. But it is clear now. Experiments conducted recently by Pan Jianwei, a physicist at the University of Science and Technology of China in Hefei, have shown that it can. The big step forward, then? The launch in August 2016 of MICEUS, the world's first quantum communication satellite. Mycius, named after a Chinese philosopher of the 5th century BC who studied optics, now orbits Earth at an altitude of 500 kilometres. Using it, Dr. Pan and his colleagues have been testing the protocols that a global quantum communications network will need to work. This all lays the foundation for more attempts to use these entangled photons for ultra-secure communication. But that's not the only thing that interests Dr. Pan. He also has other questions about the basic physics underlying entanglement. In particular, how it is that an entangled particle knows the result of changes made to its far-distant partner. That would be Nobel Prize-worthy stuff. Albert Einstein famously called the phenomenon of quantum entanglement spooky actions at a distance. Dr. Pan's work is helping to exorcise those particular ghosts. No sooner do you solve one space problem than another pops its head up. We fly over to our business section now, where a new building scheme is trying to ease overcrowding in the modern city. Monday is Game of Thrones night at the Collective's Old Oak building. Millennials congregate in TV rooms around the 11-storey, 550-person block. Some gather at the cinema, lounging on beanbags decorated with old graphics from Life magazine. Nothing gets residents out of their rooms like the hit TV show. This is not a student dorm, however. It is home. The Collective is a pioneer of a new property format known as co-living. Instead of self-contained flats, residents live in tiny rooms with 12 square metres of floor space. Most contain just a bed and a bathroom. During a two-night stay, your correspondent could barely fit his shoulders into the shower cubicle. Hmm, 
it doesn't sound too appealing, but... It is outside these rooms that the building makes its pitch. It comes with a gym, spa, libraries, a good restaurant and a cinema. Residents get access to all of these amenities, as well as their room for a rental payment of £800 to £1,000. That's $1,033 to $1,292 a month. Residents have come up with their own services too. The collective houses a library of things or a shared repository of useful objects, hammers, tape measures and even tents. The collective fills a niche necessitated by soaring rents. The ratio of average rents to incomes in London rose from a quarter to a third between 2004 and 2014. In New York, average rents have grown from 29% of average income in 2002 to 34% in 2014. Most young professionals moving to thriving cities face a difficult choice between spending a big share of their income on renting their own place or moving in with strangers in a shared house to save money. The collective offers something different. They found no shortage of willing renters for the Oaks. Maria Carvalho, a social sciences academic at the London School of Economics, moved into the building because she wanted to live with other people but did not want to have to find roommates. I would call it a hipster commune, not a hippie commune, she says. After that, what's next for the co-living model? The collective and other companies like it have a choice to make, says Roger Southam of Savills, a property firm. They could continue focusing on incoming workers to big cities, providing minimal private living space alongside attractive shared areas. But Mr Southam sees much more potential if co-living spaces can give residents slightly more private space, allowing them to attract people already living in cities. Starting from the smallest of rooms and working up may let co-living firms hit upon the perfect balance of shared and private space. Who, after all, doesn't want a cinema in the basement? But what might we want to watch? A lush country house setting, bunting and tweed decor, naff jokes about soggy bottoms. That's right, it's time to talk Bake Off as we finish with an article in our Books and Arts section that takes on a TV phenomenon. Many have argued that the ingredients of the Great British Bake Off, or GBBO, which returned for season eight on August 29th, are eminently homegrown and that the competitive cooking show evokes a simpler time in the country's past. But the supposed Britishness of the programme hasn't stopped the idea being a huge hit outside the UK. More than 20 countries across Europe, the Americas, the Middle East, Asia and Africa have taken up the format. Producers rarely tinker with its winning recipe. The challenges, a tried and tested signature bake, a technically demanding dish and a decorative showstopper are often the same. Many have kept the jaunty theme tune and picked an elderly matriarchal judge similar to Mary Berry, a previous judge of GBBO. With few exceptions, the competition is hosted in a pristine white tent on a countryside estate. Australia's is in a shed and South Africa's looks out onto dry bushland. Each country does tend to add its own icing, however. On Bake Off Brazil, contestants have been tasked with making powder queijo, cheese bread rolls, empadão, a savoury pie, and quinjim, a baked custard dessert thought to have been created by African slaves in the country's northeast in the 17th century. It is unsurprising that the canobula, or cinnamon bun, has made an appearance on Heala Sveria Bakar, all of Sweden bakes. 
The country celebrates its favourite pastry every year on October 4th. Some productions make more radical departures. Turkey's Fair Farina, Give It Up to the Oven, which is no longer on air, encouraged contestants to dance as well as bake. Those on Italy's Dolce in Forno, or Sweet in the Oven, still do, sometimes using kitchen implements as props. In Germany, a country that is more open than many about discussing adult relationships, participants had to make a cake that would offer a sexy seduction of the jury in taste and in theme. Danish challengers asked to make a dessert fit for a bachelor party offered buttercream buttocks and fondant figures copulating under the covers. But while Germans and Danes are bringing sexy bake to screens, the key ingredients remains the same the world over. The drama of a talent show without the garishness, with tasty confectionery instead of tawdry cover songs, and performances that you could, with great effort, repeat in your own kitchen. When it comes to the global appeal of a simple British idea, the proof has been in the puddings. And hopefully that goes for our tasting menu too, though my offerings probably wouldn't compete with Mary Berry. That's all from this week. We'll be back next Monday with more highlights from our coverage. In the meantime, you can read full versions of the articles in today's programme and a lot more besides on our website at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber, then do remember to have a look and give us a go. In London, this is The Economist.